Hey everybody, it's Ben again. I'm Glenn, but there's no Ken here today. What I have instead is a very special guest, Leslie Jones. Leslie Jones started off as an intern here. Uh, she was going to North Georgia, and she is now in graduate school at North Georgia. She has done some work for us over time, and she is going to talk to us about a topic that the History Center has been focusing on this year in 2020 and will continue to focus on because this is the centennial year of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave the right, or I should say it recognized, if you want to look at it from a civil rights perspective, it recognized and granted the right of women to vote in the United States. And that's important because, well, first of all, they're half the entire population, they always have been, but they had been agitating for a long time to have that voice. And there's a long history of how women's roles in politics affected the local communities, affected local government, national government, all the way back to Babylon and, and on through ancient Egypt and Rome. And, and But we're going to look at the 19th and 20th century in United States history. So here is Leslie. Hey, everybody. Well, I, I, I kind of touched on you know, the fact that you had been an intern here, but but tell us how you got into history, how you got into school, and why you're interested in this subject. I've always wanted to work in a museum, but I didn't have the money to go to school, so I saved up money uh, starting my own art business, and I came back to school to do history so I could work in a museum. But how, I mean, you had your own business for how long is that? Eight years. I haven't had my own business for eight years. <laughs> It was it was really fun though because I got to travel the country just selling my art. So why museums? I mean, what what interests you about that? It's just a place to learn and grow as a person. I work in the archives, so I help preserve all of the artifacts that get donated to the history center. Stuff is cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like learning about the history. Like when we get a letter from the 18th century and we get to read about it, it's just really interesting. And now you're in graduate school. Two weeks after I graduated. <laughs> I should graduate next year, but right now I'm working on my thesis, which actually involves women's history and the suffrage movement. So. Wow, what a happy coincidence. Whoa. Why don't you totally tell us about that then? <laughs> I'm working on Victorian spiritualism, but it actually started in America. And one of the things about spiritualism is every woman that was a spiritualist was in the suffrage movement. With the spiritualism, a lot of women did it just to be able to get out of the home. Men wouldn't let them leave. It was part of their culture then. Uh, so with spiritualism, they were allowed to leave the house. They were allowed to speak. They could do um, lectures. And one of the things they did with their lectures was talk about suffrage. Did the women, do you think they actually believed in the spiritualistic side of things or were they just using it as an excuse to get out from under the thumb of the man and associate with like-minded souls? I, I think some women really did believe in it. There's a woman, her name is Emma Hardinge Britton, and she was from America and she spent her whole life dedicated to spiritualism. But there's women like Victoria Woodhull. She was the first woman to run for president. She intentionally did spiritualism because she knew it would give her voice in the suffrage movement. All right, now well, let's back up a second because you're you're using the word spiritualism, and <laughs> and I didn't know exactly what you meant before you explained it to me. So for our listening audience, tell them what you mean by and what we're talking about when we talk about Victorian spiritualism. So spiritualism is being able to talk to the dead through seances, through musical instruments, through Ouija boards, through you name it. They wanted to talk to people that had passed away, and it 
actually started because of the Civil War. When all the soldiers died, they wanted to communicate with their loved ones. So a Ouija board was not just invented for 1980s horror film. They actually existed. <laughs> yeah, they, they came out in the 1870s. I have one from the 1940s. Yeah, it even has the evil witch from Snow White on it. <laughs> Did you hear that, Disney? Is that copyright infringement? I, I guess not, considering they paid for it, right? Did they? Who knows? Disney, <laughs> Disney will find out now that that has come out. So spiritualism and women, this sort of gives them an outlet, and, and they would gather. So, and you talked about Miss Hull, who was a, was she a leader in the spiritualist movement as well as the suffragist movement? Yeah, she actually was the president of the paranormal research group in Britain, and she used her spiritualism not only for suffrage, but she also was able to secure money to become the first woman stockbroker on the New York Stock Exchange. Wait, so she was doing math and money and spiritualism. Yeah. That is dangerous. No wonder she wanted to vote. <laughs> so, but um bum. But um bum. So the the spiritualistic aspects. Mm-hmm. What did the men think of this? There must have been some res- if if there's resistance to suffrage, do the men see this connection and if so, what kind of resistance do they start to to put out towards it? Well, with spiritualism they were really accepting because they really thought that their wives were doing it. So there was a woman, her name is Cora Hatch, and she became a preacher, a spiritualist preacher. Her husband normally wouldn't let her leave the house, but when she did spiritualism, he listened to her because she was using a voice of a man. So, okay, so she's she's preaching. So spiritualism, at least in the time we're talking about, was not considered some sort of anti-Christian belief system. No, not at all. They all were very Christian. I mean, tie, tie that in. Because, you know, today I've read a lot of those chick tracks who tell me that any sort of spiritualism or magic spells or Dungeons and Dragons is a direct path to Satanism. So this, I mean, but this sound, I mean, Ouija boards, right? It sounds like it, but but right. you're telling me in this time period it was not. Yeah, because they weren't trying to summon evil spirits. They were trying to talk to their to their kids <laughs> or their parents or whatever. And they really believed that it was God working through them. It was not separate from Christianity. It was not considered an integral part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but there was no widespread religious resistance to this movement. No, because every person basically, even with seances, they would start with a prayer. They would always talk to God before they even started the seance in the first place. This leads, this. I guess this sort of empowers women. It gives them their own area that they can operate within. And then they begin to continue. This is not where the movement started, right? No, no. This sort of gave it an impetus. So spiritualism actually started before the Civil War, and through that they also were abolitionists. And when the Civil War happened and they ended slavery, they had a new thing to come up with, and they wanted women's suffrage afterwards. So they were still spiritualists, they were still abolitionists, then they became suffragists. They were a lot of different things. So they didn't become suffragettes? No, suffragette was a derogatory term. Don't call them that. <laughs> so don't call them suffragettes. No. Don't ever say suffragettes. No, that was insulting okay, to them. Okay, suffragette is insulting. Yes. Okay. Suffragist. Suffragistesses. How, then, did these spiritualist leaders and, and these women participating in spiritualism, how did they begin to 
to push for and agitate for the suffragist movement. So women like Cora Hatch that I had talked about, they used the lectures not only to talk about God, but they would also talk about women's suffrage. And since she was using the voice of a man, she actually was heard and listened to and appreciated. So that actually did help with the movement. Now, when you say use the voice of a man, you don't actually mean that, hello, I'm Cora Hatch, and I'm going to talk about this today. She really would. She would go into a trance. She would go to sleep, and when she woke up, she would be a man. She would do the voice of a man. She would portray a man of her choosing, really. She didn't have, like, a specific character. Like, some of the spiritualists would have a specific character they would use for every one of their seances. So it it was whoever came to her in that moment. Mm -hmm. That's who she was. But it was always a man because she knew she would be heard. There, most of the women did it because they truly believed that they were doing the right thing, that they were giving women a voice when they didn't have one. There were a very small amount that actually were doing it for the money or the fame or the glory. Looking back, what do the sources say? How do the sources tell us which ones were were which ones were trying to trick people? Debunked. And we, yeah, right. Which, we, yeah, which ones were which ones were were hucksters and which ones were legitimately saying that this is a real thing? Because I'm guessing some of these women truly believed that voices and spirits were coming through mm-hmm. them. There that, were some, a handful of women that were never debunked that went to their dying day, uh, including Cora Hatch, that believed that she really was talking through God. But a lot of the women actually were debunked by Harry Houdini. He was a huge influence on defrauding these women because he did seances himself just for fun. And when his mother passed away, he realized that that was hurting the people that he would do the seances with. So he spent the rest of his life just debunking all these spiritualist women and men that he knew were defrauding them. Okay, so it's not that he did not believe in spiritualism, quite the opposite. He wanted to keep the pure ones pure and take out exactly. the bad guys, yeah. as it were. He I even mean. had like a $10,000 reward to the woman who could prove that they were really talking through God. Never happened, but he did do <laughs> well, it. Well, I'm sure that he was the ultimate judge, too. <laughs> yeah. Right? I bet they would say, you know what? If I'm not talking through God, I bet you'll drown at the bottom of a pool chained together with a lock. That sounds like history to me. <laughs> so we're still in the 19th century, which is your area of expertise. Right. But I know that previous conversations we've had, when we get closer to the actual passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment— you have some strong feelings on some of the women that the general population sees as the great heroes of the suffragist movement, like uh, the great, the great Elizabeth Cady. Don't do it. <laughs> the, the woman who is named Katie Elizabeth Stanton. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. See, I'm helping you out here. <laughs> You're welcome. So why... Why do you have problems with this great hero? Both Elizabeth Kingston and Susan B. Anthony were problems to the suffrage movement, not just from my personal opinion, but they were one of the reasons that it was set back for so long because they didn't agree with the 15th Amendment because they didn't feel that black men should be able to vote before white women. So the movement split in two, and there was a, a constant feud between the two. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton had their own suffrage movement, and then there was another one that believed that the 15th and 16th Amendment should happen. So it was just constantly battling all the time because they didn't believe that black men should get the vote before they did. And I know that, too, that a lot 
you know, making that transition after the Civil War and the the 15th Amendment, by the way, grants all males the right to vote. Right. Uh, so that was the way that post-Civil War, some of those reconstruction reforms that go into place allow black men to vote. And a lot of those female suffragists had agitated for so long for equal rights and the abolition movement right. that when they had, you know, when it came to the 15th Amendment and then women were left out again, they basically said, well, you know what? Screw you guys. We did all this work for you. We're going off on our own. And this this caused the split in the, the quote unquote party. Right. Just half of them did that. But then the other half, like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth went to the other side and then Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth K. Stanton were basically on their own. They got support from the Democrats. There were Democrats that wanted to repeal the 15th and 16th Amendment, and they actually got funding from them to do their suffrage movement. So was the plan to repeal the 15th and replace it with something that allowed white women to vote, but not black men or women? They went to the South, and they basically said, if you give white women the ability to vote, we will just keep black women on the side and they can continue to be submissive. So these are the great heroes of women's history. Our heroes. In America. Elizabeth Cady Stanton started a newspaper and one of the articles she wrote about was how we need to bring black men back to slavery because they will rape all white women. Look yeah. at this. It's like history is complicated. People are complex. People are have different motivations for the things they think are important. Mm -hmm. I guess a hero of mine would be Victoria Woodhull. She was an amazing woman, as we talked about. Not only did she start a spiritualism movement, she ran for president twice, and her running mate was Frederick Douglass. She didn't win. She did not win <laughs> either time that she ran, but she didn't plan on winning. She just wanted to get men to understand that women had a voice, too. So another way they would organize to promote suffrage was through their church. If they got sponsorship from their pastor, then the pastor would be able to communicate that you should be able to vote for women. I would say Methodists and Baptists were more open. Catholics, not at all. Well, they're Catholics. Yeah. No offense. No you're, offense. I am Catholic. Your holiness. So. So many of what we today consider movements for civil rights and, and human rights and things like that have their birth in the church. It, it played a huge role in the morality and the worldview. And so even before the Civil War, this is how you know religion was one way that the enslaved were able to find community. And all the way up into the 1960, I mean, it's Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. who's making those those agitations for, for equal rights. And, and all through history, the church has been such a central role. So it makes sense making that, that connection to spiritualism and being a part of, being accepted part of, of the Christian faith and, and something that's not opposed to it, but in, in effect, part of it makes it an, a natural connection. It's interesting, religion can be that force for change, but it can also be that conservative voice of, well, let's not change too much. Um, it's interesting how split they were. The North was more wanting to change, and the South did not want to change at all. Well, for a whole batch of reasons, the South <laughs> has always been more socially right. conservative. The suffrage movement did not go as quickly as they had planned because they kept bickering. They were women, yes. Women, am I right? Yeah, yeah. They were women. <laughs> But they also had very strong opinions 
that just did not mesh well together. So for 30 years after they wanted the vote, they did not even get together to discuss it until Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton just retired. And then everything started going smooth sailing. They started agreeing with each other. They wanted change. So those two voices, just in and of themselves, retarded the suffrage movement for decades. Yes. They, they That's are, a pretty firm yes. <laughs> they, they act like they're the heroes, but I do not agree. Well, Leslie's the the resident topic expert on women's history here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. So we're going to, because this, like I said, this is a fascinating topic. We're in the centennial year, and the History Center has a lot of programs and a lot of events tied to, yeah, there's there's a family day coming up this Sunday uh, that's called Women's Work. And we're going to look at, well, you know what? Leslie, tell us about Family Day. You you and the interns and uh, and Libba have been working on putting this great thing together. Me, Libba, and the five interns we have are all talking about women's work throughout history. Things that have changed because of women, things that are better because of women, things that are just different. So you should come and check out the activities, and we have a lot of interpreters. This Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. right here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. I think Leslie did a great job on her first podcast. So, Leslie, I will let you take us out and yell bye into the microphone. Bye, everybody. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.